Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Our guest today is Woody Tash, an investor and author of Slow Money, Investing as if Food, Farms, and Fertility Mattered. Slow Money presents an alternative food and financial system, suggesting people eat locally and invest locally. Citing 100,000 members of community-supported agriculture nationwide, Tash says there's a fledgling interest in slow money principles across the country. How can that be accelerated? His Slow Money Alliance aims to inject millions of dollars, primarily via loans and equity investments, in connecting local investors with local food systems. Sound like pie in the sky? Here's Woody Tash. I always have a few props, mostly because every day new props are foisting themselves on us. So the, so the prop I'm bringing today is this current issue of Time magazine, because I don't know if you read Time magazine. I just saw it in the airport. And the cover story is The Real Cost of Cheap Food. It's the cover story of Time magazine. And it has a hamburger package with a warning saying this hamburger may be hazardous to your health, why the American food system is bad for our bodies, our economy, and our environment, and what some visionaries are trying to do about it. It's covered this week's Time magazine. And while I, didn't, I could not take the time to do this, I'm just going to read the first paragraph from the article. It's very timely. So It says, America's food crisis and how to fix it. Somewhere in Iowa, a pig is being raised in a confined pen, packed in so tightly with other swine that their curly tails have been chopped off so they won't bite one another. You know, this is not an organic food rag. This is Time magazine. To prevent him from getting sick in such close quarters, he is dosed with antibiotics. The waste produced by the pig and his thousands of penmates on the factory farm where they live goes into manure lagoons that blanket neighboring communities with air pollution and a stomach-churning stench. It actually doesn't say. Does anybody remember when, the, when one of those lagoons broke in, in North Carolina, whenever that was, maybe five or, I don't know how many years ago it was, and the fish killed, if the number of fish that were killed in the Noose River is some, it's in the millions. I mean, it's a, it was a huge fish kill. So it's not just stench from these things, it's actually the toxics. He, the pig, is fed on American corn that was grown with the help of government subsidies and millions of tons of chemical fertilizer. When the pig is slaughtered at about five months of age, he'll become sausage or bacon that will sell cheap, feeding an American addiction to meat that has contributed to an obesity epidemic currently afflicting more than two-thirds of the population. And when the rains come, the excess fertilizer that coaxed so much corn from the ground will be washed into the Mississippi River and down into the Gulf of Mexico, where it will help kill fish for miles and miles around. That's an understatement. There's a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. I think I see a lot of nodding heads, so I won't say more. That's the state of your bacon circa 2009. That's the opening of this article. I'm going to assume that many of you who came tonight know something about the food system and might have self-selected for that reason and come to here. So we don't have to go through a litany of what's wrong with the American food system, except it is important to take a second and realize how broken it is. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to actually accept how broken it is because there seems to be plenty of food and you go to the store, there's food, and there's whole foods are stocked full of stuff. But... It, by any, let's say, more objective indicator, you'd have to say the food system is close to collapse. And a actually, that sounds really uh, bombastic, so I'm going to have to explain that. I usually don't start by saying that. Uh, the word collapse is very charged. Lester Brown, eminent Lester Brown, one of the world's great monitors of, of let's say, e 
the world's ecology on a global level. Started a speech in Aspen um, at a conference about five or six days ago. And it was a conference on renewable energy. It wasn't about food. They, they did have a food panel, which I was really, uh, that's why I was there. I was on the food panel. And so it was nice to see that they were actually looking at the carbon footprint of agriculture as part of the environment, as part of the energy equation. But it was an energy conference. And in his speech, in his keynote speech about energy, Lester Brown started by saying, after my decades, I'm paraphrasing, after my decades of work monitoring the world's systems, I've come to the conclusion that food is actually the weak link and is probably going to be what brings down our civilization. That's how he started his talk. It was very unexpected. I'd never, I actually never heard him in person, but I didn't, certainly didn't think he was going to start like that. David Smick, anybody read this book? The World is Curved. He wrote it after The World is Flat, Thomas Friedman's response. He's a very high-level financial advisor to, at the government, to uh, sovereign states around the planet. Um, and he wrote a book that basically says, I'm not going to take the time to find the citations. There are probably 50 citations in here that say point blank, the world financial system is so complicated, no one has any idea how to manage it anymore. Point blank. I'm not, I'm not like paraphrasing. Completely out of control. Why is it so out of control? Here's a number. $500 trillion. Anybody know what that number is? I'm going to do a few numbers things here just to get going. $500 trillion. Somebody guess what it is. What could possibly be as big as... Okay, before you try to guess what it is, I'll give you another number. Someone just said the answer. It's, uh, I'll give you another number. $65 trillion. Anyone want to guess what that number is? That's the total global economy, the annual sort of output of the global economy, $65 trillion. So what could be $500 trillion? The total global economy is $65 trillion. $500 trillion is the derivatives that were invented and, and, and sold in the last, let's say, eight or nine years. Only eight or nine years. All right, so, so when someone like Joseph Stiglitz says, you know, we're not fixing the structural problems of the economy because we don't know what they are. Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winning economist. We're not fixing the structural problems of the economy because we don't know what they are. And then Robert Rubin says, when asked, you know, what's the outcome of this credit crisis going to be? And he says, no one knows. You know, no one knows. That's, he's one of the architects of the system. He doesn't know. It's not, I'm not picking him out to criticize him. The point is nobody knows. The thing just got out of hand. It's out of hand. So come, come back to agriculture. Of the 12 million, this rough number, there are 12 million Smithfield hogs in the United States. It didn't identify a company. It just talked about that hog in that crate, right? There are 12 million Smithfield hogs in this country. They are all virtually genetically identical. Anybody who thinks that that sounds vaguely sustainable or, you know, so that's, like a, that's actually a perfect. So there are a lot of numbers in agriculture that are completely, that are just as scary as the derivatives number. In fact, I often think of GMOs as like the derivatives of the agricultural system. So think about it. We have tens of millions of acres of corn planted to several GMO varieties of corn in this country. And to me, those are like derivatives. What do I mean by that? They were in invented by technicians, breeders, to sort of trick Mother Nature, to get more yield out of a given piece of land if you put a lot of nitrogen on there. And, and they are very effective. It's like steroids. Just think about it. It's like Our agricultural system is just like steroids. We just put the chemicals on the land. In our case, the life cycle is maybe 75, 100 years, meaning it's only been going on for about 50 or 60 years. And we're pumping the chemicals in, and we're getting an amazing result. And it does seem pretty amazing. We're getting growth. We're getting lots of cheap commodities. That's what the system is designed to do, produce lots of cheap commodities, produce calories and protein cheap. But what happens when someone takes steroids? They get the growth for a while, and then their body collapses. And that's... I don't see how any rational person looking at what we're doing in the name of producing cheap commodities could come to another conclusion. The, the system cannot, it's not, you know, whether it be topsoil erosion, aquifer depletion, loss of biodiversity, toxics in the environment, those would be the main categories. They're all the indicators. You know, every one of those we could tell a lot of numbers and paint a horrible picture that's even more depressing than that paragraph I just read. The cover of The Economist... Some of you might remember this if you read The Economist. It had a, a graphic of a textbook. It was a, it was a painting, like an artist rendering of a textbook. And the textbook is on its side like this, and it's melting into the table. And the, the title of the textbook is Modern Economic Theory, meaning it's melting. That's the cover of The Economist from a month ago. I mean, it's really stark. That's why it's better to have it than make you imagine it. But hopefully you can, you can imagine it. And what was the article about? The article was about the fact that the efficient market hypothesis was no longer valid. The efficient market hypothesis, that is the fundamental underpinning of the trillions of dollars a day. I didn't, we didn't get that number. Three trillion a day, at least, going around in currency markets. Three trillion a day. Just one kind of currency flow. So 
Um, the efficient market hypothesis. Again, I, I, I want to move on from this, let's say, horrifically depressing part of the presentation um, in a second. Um, but think about this manifestation of the wealth creation efficiency of the 20th century. Approximately, rough number, $500 billion of private foundation assets in the United States. Okay? It might actually be a little less now with this, what's going on in the market stuff, but still that's a rough order of magnitude. $500 billion of foundation assets. So before I even go further, I'd say, what are those assets? That is, in a sense, the wealth that was created by our efficient markets, right, which are, which are very powerful wealth creation vehicles. They are. Let's leave out, I mean, we're going to touch on this. The, the, how, what happens to the wealth is a whole other issue. But it did create what John Doerr called the greatest legal accumulation of wealth in history. It did create that. The efficient markets were very good at creating wealth. Tremendous. So you have $500 billion, which you can just say is the output, the philanthropic output of the 20th century. This is money that was set aside, in a sense, you could argue, from a macro standpoint, to clean up the mess that free markets were not able to clean up. Right? This is philanthropy. It's like what you do with the money after you have so much that you can put it aside to do good things with it. So where's the money going? Schools, hospitals, churches, poverty relief, poverty reduction, disaster relief. I mean, those are all good things, so it's not an argument against those things. But the systemic problems that the economic growth itself is creating meaning the threat to the web of life, a.k.a. climate change and all these other problems, endocrine disruptors and you know, a whole slew of problems that are now starting to become obvious. Philanthropy is not reacting. If you, and you think, how could this be? Um, a lot of reasons. First of all, we didn't know a lot of this until fairly recently. Right? Five years ago, Al Gore was still an environmental crackpot, and then all of a sudden, he's a genius. You know? I mean, so that, it, took, it took him... I think, to break through in the popular consciousness about climate change. So it's going to take a while for all these other things to manifest themselves. But philanthropy was set up to do what? To give grants. What's the problem we now face? We have to, we have to create a whole new economy. We have to create an economy where enterprises, while they are creating jobs and wealth, are also repairing broken social and environmental relationships. We don't have time. I mean, here's another indicator of the 20th century. It would take more time to discuss it. 1,200 billionaires were created in the 20th century. What does that mean? Who the hell knows? I don't know what it means. But I, but I, but I would argue that we don't have time to create the next 5,000 billionaires and hope that they will put some money aside in foundations to clean up the mess that the next century is going to create. We, just, you know, we, we got through the 20th century because we were going from 2 billion to 6.7 billion people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have time to use the same broken model in the 21st century and hope that we're just going to have a, enough gold at the end of the rainbow to clean up. So where am I going with all this? So what's slow money? Slow money is, first of all, um, just a set of ideas that could allow us to kind of look at this mess and dare to think that there might be an alternative going forward, which is a fairly audacious thing, right? I mean, it's, it's complicated. There's a lot of embedded momentum in the old system. But um, if I really just jump, really, if I just skip everything in the middle and just go to the end, there's actually a slightly happy ending to this horrible story, which is called local food systems, which are bubbling up all over the United States as we speak. Meaning, you know, CSAs is a great example. How many people here, just curious, anybody here does not know what a CSA is? Maybe that would be good. Okay, a couple of people. So a CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. What does that acronym mean? It means a very specific thing. It's a farm that sells its produce in advance of the planting season to all of its customers. So if you have 100, let's say, CSA members, they each buy one one-hundredth of the, whatever the farm produces, but they pay in advance. So it's, you're financing the farmer for the season, and you're connecting yourself as a consumer directly to that farm, and it's kind of weird. Why is it weird? You just get one one-hundredth of whatever the farm produces, whether you like it or not. So you get all kinds of crazy stuff in your box or your bag, and you have to learn what it is. Kohlrabi, you know, what does that look like? Uh, most of us, myself included, didn't know until I saw it at a CSA. So um, why is that important? Uh, first, I'd say there's 100,000 CSA members in the United States right now. Now, I don't know if you think that's a lot or a little. Little. People are nodding little. Right. 55,000 in Copenhagen alone. Just to put it in perspective. Now, now, I do always have to say that's not an exact, it's not a CSA purely, but it's a CSA type distribution, meaning there are 55,000 families in Copenhagen who are getting a box of organic food delivered to them every week. So, um, why do I focus on CSAs as part of the happy ending? Because that 100,000 families that are belonging to CSAs are the beginning of the future of our civilization, I would actually argue. That's a really, uh, that, that also sounds really bombastic to just drop that word in here, but I would say I'm getting it from this conference in Aspen I was at last week. 
where the theme that ran through the conference was this is not about renewable energy, it is about saving civilization. I'm not making, these were all leaders in renewable energy and they found themselves going to this other level in the discussion. They didn't just want to talk about, they talked about all the details of wind and solar and et cetera, but the, the conversation kept going to, we're talking about saving civilization. It's not the planet, we all know that argument, you know, the planet's going to be fine without us or without Western style consumerism, right? But if we want to save the civilization we've created, we have to remake big portions of it. Um, and I think CSAs, as simple and small as they might seem in the scale thing, are actually a beautiful early manifestation of the new direction, meaning people voluntarily coming together in a new way to connect directly, to connect to the place where they live, in this case to connect directly to a farmer. But it's about the relationships. You know, I was, I was having um, a coffee a few hours ago with someone from the Tides Foundation. I'm sure many of you here know the Tides Foundation. And she's a very um, experienced financier who's now a philanthropic advisor for the Tides Foundation. And she mentioned the word due diligence during the conversation. I stopped her and said, you know, what is due diligence? What is professional due diligence? It's what you have to do when you have no idea who the person is that you're dealing with or what the hell they're really doing. You have to get professional processes in place to try to figure out what the thing is that you're about to make an investment in. Think about the world would be like if there was actually enough social capital and enough intimacy and relationship that you actually knew the, you know, we started joking about it's a, it's a wonderful life, you know, the, the, um, the Jimmy Stewart movie from uh, about depression era banks. And, you know, these things are so simple, you know, it's so basic and so simple that it's almost embarrassing. You say, how, you know, what the hell are we talking about? We're talking about really basic stuff. We're talking about, I, I guess I'll have to give this, other, this another anecdote, which is coming back from Terra Madre last fall, Terra Madre being this big slow food event in Turin where 5,000 farmers from 150 countries come together for five days with 1,000 chefs and 1,000 students. Just try to imagine that. It's a really amazing thing. A few of you have been to them, I know. And on the way back, the only reason I'm telling the story is there was a thing in the International Herald, a, a thing, a, an article, full-page article, and the headline was, At the Crossroads of Finance and Culture. Now, this was in the first week of November, just to put it in time frame. Obama had just won the election. But it wasn't about politics, it was about the economy, which had just, the bottom had just fallen out, right, first week in November. And they said, we are entering a period where the, the relationship of finance and culture is going to be questioned like no time since the Great Depression. And I believe that's true. I've been, go I've been now traveling around the country for eight months, um, you know, courtesy of this book, but also, now I'll shift gears a little bit and tell you about the NGO, Slow Money. We are actually trying to do something about this. We are actually trying to make Slow Money be real. And so I've talked to thousands of people in dozens of communities, and um, with a tiniest bit of prodding, which I am providing, the tiniest bit of, pro uh, of prodding, people are coming out to talk about what might be done as an alternative to globalization, the way it is manifesting itself. In this case, you know, again, where's our food come from? Where's our money going? You know, the food part has become a little more obvious to certain groups of people who are, you know, let's say, progressive consumers. But the where our money goes part, is still hardly on the table. And if you talk about, let's say, social investing as an early manifestation, what we've, what we've come to know as social investing, as an early manifestation of trying to take ownership for our dollars, trying to connect our personal values to our investing, you know, as long as you are invested in a portfolio of, let's say, 400 or more companies that is trying to be, quote, competitive, there is very little you're really going to be able to do to address systemic problems. And in this case, that's a, we could talk for hours about any one of the assertions I'm making here, but in this case, I would say we are trying to um, create a system that will make it easier for local investors to invest directly in local food systems with the same kind of spirit that people belong to CSAs, meaning we know this is good, we know we need to do it, we're not sure we can make a lot of money doing it. In fact, all the evidence would be that we're probably not going to make a lot of money doing it. Why is that? Because the way you make a lot of money is to invest in the next Google, to, is to shoot at... 20 shots at the next Google and hope that one of them hits. That's how venture capitalists make money. That is the opposite of what we're talking about. We're talking about lots of small local investing. Um, the good news is, again, I want to go back to the good news. There's tens of thousands of small food enterprises. You know, small organic farms are actually growing. You know, the, the last ag census, there was, a, there was a resurgence in the number of small diversified farms. I think the number was 33,000 more in 2007 than 2002. It's the only category that's growing. You know, um, again, those horrible numbers, the, those big numbers. You, I think you all know that farming went down from 25 million in 1950 to like 2 million now. But that's not even the worst number. It's some number like, I can't quite remember it. It might be 100 and, see if I can get this right. I think it's about 175,000 of those farms. 175,000 produce about 75% of, of the food supply.
And coming back to our pig for a second, if we come back to that, just to circle back around, um, the, you know, the question often comes up, um, oh, this all sounds really good, but you can't feed the world doing this small, diversified, those are hobby farms, what the hell are you talking about? So I would ask a, another question. I, I said I wasn't going to, but I'm going to ask another question. What percentage of the corn grown in the United States is fed to livestock? It's, it's actually the, it's a percentage of grain grown in North America. It's not just corn. It would include uh, corn and sorghum. But anyone want to guess? It's, it's over 60%, all right, where, where it's converted to protein at a very ineffi- inefficient compared to how, how, the, how much protein it can you know, uh, uh, repre- represent consumed directly by humans. So we, we produce plenty of calories and protein on the planet. The slow food people pr- um, project that we have enough food right now to feed 12 billion people if it was, quote, distributed efficiently. That's the funny thing about this efficient market, right? It's really efficient at creating wealth. It's not efficient at many other things that are really important, like distributing food equitably. All right. So in the interest of time, um, I'm going to drop down to what we're trying to do about all of this. Um, and it really has turned out to be relatively simple. Um, we are uh, creating a membership organization called the Slow Money Alliance. Uh, we've got several hundred intrepid early adopters. I'll tell you more about them in a second. And next month, this, this meeting that tonight represents a pre-launch discussion, if you will. We've been at this for actually almost 18 months. And um, it has taken us a while to arrive at the strategy. And I, and I, was, I was talking before the meeting um, with a few folks about this. The funny thing is, that during this last eight-month period, when the book came out, what else has happened? You know, the book happened to come out. You could, as my friends in New Mexico say, it wasn't a coincidence, you know. But, <laughs> but whatever, whatever. I'm glad you laughed when I said that. Um, so the book came out, and here we are talking about slow money and trying to figure out how do we start investing in local food systems and how can we demonstrate what the risk returns of this new asset class would be and if we raised the first 50 or $100 million and invested in 15 or 20 slow money things and this, that. So we were all wrestling with this. And meanwhile, what happened? The election happened. And, the bottom, and, and this, what I would call macroeconomic uncertainty of global proportions happened. Right? I mean, just a year ago, people were not talking like they are right now. Just a year ago. You would never have seen that cover of The Economist from last month, ever. Uh, so if you add that, that cover to this cover... I mean, there are a million, again, I, I wish I had more props. Um, Mother Jones from about three or four months ago, you may remember this cover. So it's good to say this in San Francisco, home of Mother Jones. It had a graphic of like a farmer on the cover, and it said, want to fix America's economy? Start with food. That was maybe in April. So the combination of food consciousness, now with Food Inc., et cetera, that's coming up. But meanwhile, that macroeconomic uncertainty, that feeling that something is fundamentally out of control with global finance, and I would just urge you, this is not just one muckraking person saying, you know, just read any of these books. I, I, I think I have one of them in my uh, bag called False Economies. There's one called The Myth of the Rational Market. I mean, there's a plethora of them out right now. Most of them focus on just how screwed up the system is. And then the question of, here's the interesting thing about this particular writer, Smick, says he's worried that if the government tries to regulate some of the risk out of the system, it'll screw it up even more. So that's what he's actually worried about, you know which is a very good thing to worry about because, you know, as screwed up as markets are, what's even more screwed up? Well, maybe the government's even more screwed up. It's actually a funny thing. I'm just flashing to driving outside of Austin, Texas, where I was meeting with a bunch of people about slow money, and I was listening to the radio, and there was just an arch, arch, arch right wing. I mean, like the rightest thing I've heard in a long time, just railing against the government. You know, they want to come in big government, they're going to blah, 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 blah. And I realized, you know, here's the choice, big government versus free markets. They're both wrong. They're both wrong. You know, why are they wrong? Because they're both out of control. They're both impossible to manage. The only thing, the only clue, the only possible thing, if we're going to pull the rabbit out of the hat, we, meaning our civilization, our country, we have to figure out how to get more local, how to connect back with one another, be connected to actual places, be willing to invest our money in the places where we live, be willing to not listen to all the experts who say that's no, there's no such asset class as that, that's mixing philanthropy and investing. You've got to forget all that. Not with all the money, just a portion of your money. We're talking, you know, let's go back to the 99.99 and the 0.01%, the 0.01% of foundation assets that are actually going to solve the sustainable you know, food problem. We don't have to take all of our money and do something crazy with it, but we've got to take percents of it it's not 0.01, it's like 1%, 5%, 10%. I actually believe eventually it's going to be a bigger number than that. But to start with, it's got to be take some percentage of your money and say, damn it, I'm going to put it to work in something that I understand 
near where I live, where I, where I see what the tangible impact of that money is. That's how screwed up our system is. I'm sure that everybody in this room doesn't know where their money is, even if you think you do. You don't know where it is. I, I would argue that it's going up a smokestack in China. That's actually where your money is going. Why are we not in a depression right now? One word, China. Just think about what's going on in China right now. And by the way, I'm not anti-Chinese. Someone said, it sounds like you're always ragging on China. I'm, I, it's not against China. It's, just, it's, it's against how out of control everything is, including the Chinese economy. Um, they've built more roads in the last year in China than they did all 50 years before. You know, they're going to try to have 100 million cars or whatever it is. There's something like 600 million cars on the planet. Now they are going to be 100 million more in China over the next X number of years. It's not even, you know, 70% of the water in Chinese rivers is not suitable for drinking or use in agriculture. The, the aquifer depletion thing I gave in Ogallala is worse in China. I don't remember the exact number. It's worse. There is worse aquifer depletion in China. And in India, you've heard about the results of aquifer depletion. There are farmers committing suicide and all kinds of things going on in India. So, um, okay. I want, now I've got to come back to the good news again. Um, what are we going to do about this? Uh, it's not going to be easy, but on the other hand, it actually isn't all that complicated. We want to get a million Americans to first do the following, sign on to the slow money principles. Now, you don't know what the slow money principles are, so you're going to have to go on our website. And I actually have little cards here that, that have a few of them on it. But these are very simple principles. They're slightly playful um, because this is about culture as well as about finance. It's not just about numbers, even though the numbers are the daunting thing we have to kind of look at. Um, I, I actually feel like I want to add one other thing. I was on a radio interview this morning, and the interviewer asked me why was Herman Daly so important. And how many people here know who Herman Daly is? Just, I'm just kind of curious, kind of interesting. So even in this very self-selected crowd, maybe only ten, five or ten people out of 40 or 50 people know who Herman Daly is. Herman Daly was a former World Bank economist um, who has spent his career um, writing about and, and um, um, publishing about what he calls steady-state economics, the idea that we need to come up with a new economic paradigm that is no longer about growth, but about managing within a steady state. Why? Because that old question of unlimited economic growth inside a finite biosphere does seem to be a bit of an oxymoron. And we can keep tricking Mother Nature a certain amount by coming up with new technologies and clean up this and trick that and splice you know, the fish gene into the tomato and do all these different things. And we can kind of keep doing that for a while, but I think common sense which is something that we are you know, in somewhat short supply of, would indicate eventually you're going to run into a wall. And it may be bad. When, you, when we get to that far end, there may not be an easy way back. So I'm mentioning Herman Daly because uh, he did a great job of crystallizing one very basic part of this equation, and that is that we have to move from an economic paradigm that is all about maximizing economic gro quantitative growth to, to one which is about what he called development, qualitative improvement. So if you think about growth as being quantitative expansion, you think about development being qualitative improvement, and you just think for a second about how different those two things are, and the fact that when you measure economic growth, all kinds of crazy things are in there. You know, divorce, hurricanes, cancer, brownfields, you know, cars. Cars aren't all bad, but an economy that's based on having to get people to buy 20 million cars a year it may not be the healthiest economy ever, right? So um, all of those things are in GDP, cigarettes, selling cigarettes, treating people who get cancer. It's all GDP. So that number, that number that we look at, the stock market index, is not relevant to human well-being. It's not really, it has nothing to do with human well-being. It has to do with economic activity, much of which is actually destructive. So. I'm not sure what made me do the aside on Herman Daly, but there you have it. So the, the antidote to all of this is not some new macroeconomic system. It's, not, it's just good old-fashioned capitalism. It's good old-fashioned entrepreneurship, but at a local small level. So it's tens of thousands of small organic farms. It's you know, thousands of local processing facilities. It's thousands of restaurants that buy local and, and organic. It's you know, thousands of niche organic brands. It's nothing, there's no rocket science here. There's nothing. This is just a way to start the process of taking a little money out of that crazy fast system and beginning to direct it into things that we know are good, or at least I believe are good. And, and there's, there's another question here that saying I believe they are good makes me want to address, and that is um, I, I was listening this morning. I think maybe a lot of you heard this. I think it was on KQED. A, a call-in show about John Mackey and Whole Food and the boycott and his position on health care. I see a lot of nodding heads. And the woman who was leading the boycott against Whole Foods said, well, his positions aren't based on fact. 
She just kept saying, his positions aren't based on fact. He's just spewing all of the insurance company, blah, 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 and he's not. Well, I don't know what a fact is. I mean, I believe that it's a fact that there are 12 million Smithfield hogs in cages that are genetically identical, but do I actually know that? I just have to believe that whoever reported that was somehow knew a lot more than I did. But we live in a world where we're so removed from everything that we just have to believe what someone is telling us. I mean, what's a fact? How much do you really know about anything? I don't know. I mean, I know we're all in this room together. You know? I know that if I live in a community and there's a farmer that within five miles who I'm getting raw milk from, I'm just making this up, that I don't want him to go out of business. Do I, do I know what the systemic implications are if I take some of my money and invest it in him and instead of investing in that? And I don't know. I have ideas about that. But I, this is all about doing something that you believe has inherent value. Um, and being willing to stick with that in a world where a lot of experts are going to tell you not to do it. And by the way, unfortunately, most of those experts have an incentive for you to do what they are telling you to do. Um, I would mention another book, just again, so that you don't, this isn't just me making this stuff up. I mean, John Bogle, I'm just curious, how many people know the name John Bogle? A lot. How many people have seen his book? Enough. Just curious. He wrote a book last year called Enough. I'm sure it didn't get read that, you know, there are a lot of books on this topic. But I would commend it to you. It's a very short book. You could probably get the whole idea of it in an hour of kind of skimming through it. And it's just a synthesis of his life's position, which is financial intermediaries are taking way too much money off the table and screwing the investor. And he spent his life doing the arithmetic. He's just done the arithmetic. It has nothing to do with the environment. There's no evidence that John Bogle cares about the environment from this book. And I say that with great affection for him as a financial innovator. It's all about just the arithmetic that if you look at the fees that are charged by Wall Street for all of the products, there is no way for the average investor to come out ahead. That's the whole premise. And then he does all the numbers, and the numbers are as horrifically big as some of the other numbers. You look at things like the percentage of corporate profits in the United States that are represented by the financial intermediaries right now. And unfortunately, I don't remember the actual number, but if you just think about the trends, it's very obvious. You know, 30 or 40 years ago, Let's say, I'm making these numbers up just to be illustrative. Manufacturing might have been 25% of the U.S. GDP 35 years ago. Now it's down to 10%. And guess what? Financial intermediation did the exact opposite thing. It used to be 5 or 10%, and now it's 20%. So the, the financial system itself is, is it, these are John Bogle's words, are croupiers. He uses, he uses the gambling analogy. The croupiers are taking so much off the table in all of these flows. Footnote, right? Topical footnote, Goldman Sachs. It's pretty hard to talk about this right now. And I don't, I'm not into scapegoating any one company or any one person because the whole system, everyone is just in this system. You know, we're talking about trying to break out of these, this paradigm. But you know, for a firm to be taking $100 million of profits a day, that's what we're talking about, $100 million a day of profits, day in, day out, not quite day in, day out, but almost day in, day out for a few quarters, in the midst of right now, I'm talking about right now, with all of the shit that is happening. And let's say feel comfortable doing that because it's about efficient markets. How are they doing it? They have a program that is so fast that it's kind of somehow, I, I, this is way beyond my understanding, but I, you know, having heard Krugman and a whole bunch of other credible people reporting on it, they have a new trading uh, uh, software that is super fast. So this is a perfect thing for me to use as a foil for slow money. Super fast. Super fast. $100 million a day just for helping the market be efficient. So let's come back to what we're doing about it. Against all of that, I would argue a beautiful and simple solution is to get a million Americans to sign on to the slow money principles. That's the first thing. Why a million? We don't know. It's just a number that's bigger than 1,000 and smaller than 10 million. Um, what I can say is I really believe, given the current political climate, that if we come anywhere close to that target, we will actually be able to affect policy in, very, in many levels. But we're not set up. We're, we're an investment group. We're an unusual investment group, so I'm going to tell you how we're going to work in a second. But here are a couple of the slow money principles. I'm going to give you these little cards because uh, we have, I mentioned earlier in the presentation that this is like a pre-launch discussion. What do I mean by that? Next month, we have a gathering in Santa Fe. Um, there will be at least 300 people there. It's, there seems to be a little swell going on. Um, people from five countries, as it turns out. This is without, this part of it was viral. I mean, we didn't reach out to anybody outside the U.S. We have people from five countries that we know of coming. Um, and that meeting is going to be our official national launch of our campaign to get a million Americans to sign the slow money principles. It's taken us this last 18 months to kind of arrive at this strategy. And I'm happy when we gab, but hopefully you ask me some more questions about the strategy, I'll tell you. Um, we actually have a new version of the slow money principles, which is shorter than this one. But the spirit is exactly the same. And so just to give you the spirit, I just want to read the first couple of these. One, 
You, by the way, you're not allowed to laugh at how simple these are. Um, and you can laugh before I read them, but you can't laugh after I read them. Uh, I'm pausing for a second because I want to say this. Um, I didn't really say much about my background. Sometimes people say, well, how the hell did you get into this? And so I've been around deals for 30 years in various ways. Venture cap- small scale, by today's standards, small scale venture capital, foundation treasurer, starting different NGOs and working with angel investors. And I say that. And, and I would also say some of the members of the Slow Money Alliance um, we have 100 founding members right now. I'll say some more about the members in a second. But some of them are leaders in the social investment field. So when I made my comment about social investing before, I'm not dissing a person. I'm, I'm saying we're all trying to invent what comes next. But the reason I'm saying that now is there's nothing more important to me, to my way of thinking right now, than just being willing to articulate a very basic set of new values and just stick with them and say, that's what we believe and we're going to figure it out. Because if you don't do that, you end up going sliding back into this, well, it's this asset class, we've got to do that, we have to make this benchmark, we have to, you're asking for a bond, you know, equity risk and giving bond returns, all of these conundrums that occur when you stay in the existing you know, financial paradigm would seem to make this thing oxymoronic. But if you step outside of it and you affirm a bunch of basic values and say, we're just going to start going in this direction with a little bit of our money, and then we're going to invent the rest as we go, you start with some very basic things. So that's a little bit of a caveat. One, we must bring money back down to earth. As far as I'm concerned, we could stop with that one and never have another one. Um, Oh, I'm serious. We must bring money back down to earth. Maybe we should stop. Maybe we... I can name that tune in one uh, one principle. But we do have a couple of other ones. I'm not going to read them all. Um, We must put money back into local economies and carbon back into the soil. Pretty basic. Why aren't we thinking about our economy as a, as a vehicle for putting carbon back into the soil? That's a whole other topic, carbon sequestration. It turns out soil high in organic matter holds carbon, is, is rich in carbon, holds water. Uh, we, we, by accident, ended up with an industrial agriculture system that does exactly the opposite. It strips organic matter out of the soil and sends carbon in the atmosphere. It's, it's, but again, we didn't know when we started after World War II really going in earnest. No one knew what, what these consequences were. Three, we must invest as if food, farms, and fertility mattered. So I'm not going to read anymore. Um, I would ask you, and I'll try to remember to do this before we break, please, if you're moved after this, go on our website, slowmoneyalliance.org, and sign the slow money principles. No money involved. Just sign the principles. If we get a million people to sign those principles, I'll, I'll put my crazy career on the line more than it already is and say I will guarantee that we will affect some good change in the food system in this country. Now, experience suggests that if we get a million people to sign the principles, a decent percentage will also, step two, choose to join the Slow Money Alliance. What does that mean? That means sending in $25 or more to us to do what? This is the important how. This is like what the what and the how. Um, we are going to get tens of millions of dollars coming through the system, and we are going to use that capital to invest in building local capacity around the country to connect local investors to local food systems. Now, that would take quite a bit of time. To, when we do day-long workshops, we spend like the whole day talking about how that would work. But if you just think about for right now, us as an NGO, we're nonprofit, taking tens of millions of dollars from hundreds of thousands or more Americans and catalytically using that as either grants, loans, or equity investments, mostly the latter two, but catalytic seed capital to help build local capacity to connect local investors to local food systems. Why is that important? Because that's the only place there's enough money and enough connection to, to possibly pull the rabbit out of the hat, to use that phrase again, on the American food system. We have, a, we have, let's say, 10 or 20 years left. It's just let's say, it's the same global warming problem. All the problems are compounding rapidly. We have a few years, in the scheme of things, no time at all to make massive capital flows in a, in a different way. And the, the only hope that's going to happen, no centralized intermediaries are ever going to do it enough. It has to be people who have a, the, the stake in their community directly, you know, going back to that farmer analogy, you know the farmer, you know where the, your milk is coming from, and you want to invest in him or her because you don't want them to go under. That's the only way, we're, that's the only chance, in my opinion. Having three or four more new funds to do organic food investing doesn't mean a thing. Not, not at the level we're talking about. So, so um, that's what we're doing. The founding members, one of them just left before, it's Greg Steltenpol, the founder of Odwalla. Um, George Seaman, the CEO of Organic Valley, uh, Peter Kinder, one of the fathers of social investing, Rich Rominger, who happens to be in the room, one of, you know, eminent uh, policy, uh, retired policymaker uh, at, a na- at a national and state level in agriculture. Um, 
So I, I would, if you want to know more, just go on our website. You'll see the founding members. There are about 100 of them. Um, and, um, but that's not what's going to drive this. Th that's going to be, let's say, some of the, the strategic help that we need to kind of make this real. But what's going to drive this is hundreds of thousands or millions of Americans coming in at a very small level. Now, I, I'll just say one other thing, and then I'm going to open it for questions. If you think about what I said way at the beginning of this about the $500 billion and the 0.01 percent, think about what we're, what we're setting out to do, how it relates to American philanthropy. Instead of having very large pools of capital controlled by a few people and created off of great industrial wealth, we're going to create a grassroots flow of capital that we are going to take, use them as if they were the assets in a foundation, they're coming into a nonprofit, and we're going to invest them all in trying to build new food systems in this country. So it is a form of this new, as I, as I kind of pointed to before, a new form of philanthropic investing. Whatever language you want to use, I hate those words, philanthropic investing. That's the old paradigm. This is just what it means to invest in the 20... In my opinion, this is what it means to invest in the 21st century. And maybe, maybe I'll, end on two, I'll end with two things. I'll end with one of the slow money principles, because it's something Paul Newman said, and then maybe I'll just read a little tiny, tiny bit from the book just to give a flavor of what's in the book. One of the slow money principles that made it into the, the shorter version is the following. It's Paul Newman saying the following. I'm just saying in life we need to be more like the farmer who puts back into the soil what he takes out. And if you just think about that as an economic principle, if that's what it means to be an investor in the 21st century, that we have to put back as much as we take out. You know, the last 25 years in particular of investing is all about how much you can take out and how fast. And, and there's sort of this understanding that the invisible hand of the market will just take care of everything in the, in, in the process of doing that. But I think we've talked about enough numbers tonight to indicate that there are many, 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 many things that the invisible hand of the market does not take care of. So that, to me, being an investor in the 21st century means thinking like, I'll just use that example, Paul Newman, we have to put back what we take out. And at the local level, the only way you can really do that is at the local level, where you can see what you're putting back. A woman in Ashland, Oregon, whose name I don't know, I have to find out her name, after an afternoon workshop we had, said the following. I want to share two things that people have said in slow money workshops because it's, it's part of the good news. It's part of people just coming to a new way of thinking about this. So this woman said, the innate value of this kind of investing is so obvious to me that I don't care how much money I make. Now, I, I'm sure if there are any professional investors in the room, you, you, you're fighting your temptation to run out when I say that. And I understand that. But, but to me, we don't have time to get into it more than just leave it at that and say that there's a certain power and beauty in what she said that I think is a new truth. For a, again, for a certain portion of our assets, I want to repeat, this is about balance. It's not about being abandoning the entire industrial system, but it's about not feeling that a 0.01% is anywhere near enough. Here's, here's another uh, something. Um, uh, this woman, I do know her name, Odessa Piper, who was one of the early board members of Chef's Collaborative. She was with us for a day in, in uh, Madison uh, about a month ago. We had a Slow Money Institute, a day-long workshop in Madison. And at the end of the day, we got into a roaring discussion, a friendly but roaring discussion about what local actually meant. Like, what is local? Is it 100 miles, 50 miles? Is it a, you know, a watershed? What, what the heck is it? And Odessa stood up and said, I'd like to offer this definition. Local is the distance your heart can travel. Now, again, to a professional investor, that sounds like complete and utter bullshit, right? But to, I would say to a regular person, it isn't. Because if you think about what that actually means, it means that if you have a relationship with the person you're investing in, it changes everything. And our entire system, everything in our security laws is set up for people who don't know each other to invest in things they don't really understand. So I can't say more right now. Um, uh, so I want to just go back to Paul Newman's thing. The reason I went to those two women was because another woman, I also don't know her name, in Vermont, after a long discussion of this one night, with a very diverse audience, meaning some of the people were scions of some of the names on Wall Street and some were just local organic people, just all over the place in financial experience. And she said towards the end of the night, hey, I don't know anything about finance. I've been listening to this. I really don't get a lot of what you're talking about. I just think we have to put back in more than we're taking out. That, she really did. We, we, hadn't had, we hadn't said the Paul Newman quote or anything. She just said that ingenuously. And I said, that you understand enough. That is what we're talking about, figuring out some way to put back in more than we're taking out. So, all right, so with that said... I have no idea what to read, because, uh, but I do want to read something. Um, I'm going to be incredibly generous of heart and not read my own words. I'm going to read a paragraph of David Orr's, because it's a great paragraph. But I hope you will um, be curious enough to get the book and read some of my words. But here's a quote from David Orr. 
There is an appropriate velocity for water set by geology, soils, vegetation, ecological relationships, I'm sorry, and ecological relationships in a given landscape. There is an appropriate velocity for money that corresponds to long-term needs of communities rooted in particular places and to the necessity of preserving ecological capital. There is an appropriate velocity for information set by the assimilative capacity of the mind, the assimilative capacity of the mind, and by the collective learning rate of communities and entire societies. Having exceeded the speed limits, we are vulnerable to ecological degradation, economic arrangements that are unjust and unsustainable, and in the face of great and complex problems, to befuddlement that comes with information overload. Now, because we don't have time, I'm just going to say, just think about appropriate velocity for money, appropriate velocity for water, appropriate velocity for information, and just kind of sit with that for a second. And it suggests a whole bunch of things that no economist was ever trained to think about, no financier was ever told to worry about. And um, I'm going to actually break my own rule and just read one paragraph of my words, because I just can't, can't, I can't leave it with David. As long as money accelerates around the planet, divorced from where we live, our befuddlement will continue. As long as the way we invest is divorced from how we live and how we consume, our befuddlement will worsen. As long as the way we invest uproots companies, putting them in the hands of a broad, shallow pool of absentee shareholders whose primary goal is the endless growth of their financial capital, our befuddlement at the depletion of our social and natural capital will only deepen. So, um, welcome to the world of slow money. I want to say again, I urge you to please sign the slow money principles. It's a very simple thing to do. And if any of you are so moved, you might want to check out this conference that's coming up in Santa Fe next month. And um, I look forward to answering any questions. So just a reminder for those listening to us on the radio, you're listening to Woody Tash, who's the author of Slow Money. Um, we're going to take some time now for questions, and we have a wireless mic that we'll be passing. If you could please raise, raise your hand, Woody will call on you, and then we'll pass the microphone. If you could please speak directly into the microphone so make sure our audience uh, can hear your question. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for this presentation. I, my question is one that wants to step back from even slow money and from economies and even looking at the farming to the question of how did we even get to this place in the first place? What is it that, what is it about human beings that has us be in this kind of a mess um, worldwide, environmentally? And... I would assert, and I'm happy to have you speak about it if you feel so moved, I would assert that we are completely disconnected from most of the rest of life forms and born of really kind of a monoculture kind of arrogance that we're the most important thing since sliced bread and um, that there's something fundamentally underlying how we think of ourselves in the, in the web of life. So have you given any thought to that? No, it never occurred to me. It's a, it's a funny thing. I, what I'm thinking back to is myself at about 10 years old, I stumbled on a book called The Story of Man's Future. I keep meaning to find this book again. Written by a British sociologist, I guess he was, who I think's last name was Harrison, but I'm not sure. And it was basically a neo-Malthusian exposition of the fact that population was, we were going to, that our species was going to consume its way to oblivion at some point, even though we didn't know exactly when. And I remember reading, you know, when I was 10 years old, I stumbled on that and went, you know, that's it. We got a problem here. We're not, we don't fit in. You know, we're not, we're not worried about whether we fit in or not. And so um, overall, I would say, sure, I, I agree with you, that, that, uh, but I put it in the positive. This would be, again, the way to cast us in the positive. We are at a moment in time where we, a moment, meaning a generation or two, a moment in the history, right, which is a blink, where we are going to get a chance to figure this out. Or it's going to be figured out for us. You know, another way to say this is, has any species, I'm not enough of a scientist to know the answer to this, but I'm guessing an answer. Has any species ever limited itself before the environment limited it? And the answer is, I don't think so. I think species grow until the environment tells them they can't grow anymore and they get into some sort of relationship with that limit. In some cases, there's a collapse. In our case, it's the, the danger seems to be that we're kind of fouling the nest of all the species all at the same time. So it's not just about us coming into some kind of relation. We're kind of destroying the web for all species. So 
I would say let's focus on the positive, that there's a chance. I'm serious. There's a chance that we'll figure this out. The chance is not zero. It's not zero. We are all in this room tonight. That means there's a chance we're going to figure it out. And the, the positive thing would be that it might happen much... This is the irony of slow money. and saying we need slow money quickly. And by the way, I totally agree with you. It's not about slow money. That's just one tiny thread of a much bigger historical, cultural, biological you know, web. But there's a tiny chance that if we start moving in the right direction, you know, that whole tipping point thing, that energy will start flowing in a major new way. And what seems preposterous right now will not seem preposterous 10 and 20 years from now. Now I'm talking about financially, the things that seem preposterous financially right now. What could seem more preposterous than hundreds of investors collaborating like in a CSA to invest locally with like no intermediation? That seems totally preposterous. It doesn't seem even remotely possible to the modern investor. No, but I see this group, you're nodding a little bit. I mean, I think it's going to happen. Whether it happens fast enough and at a large enough scale, you know, who knows? Thanks, Woody. This is a great presentation. I love what you're doing. My question is really about um, the relationship between the local part of the proposition and the rest of the proposition. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do spend some time talking to people in parts of the country that folks in the Bay Area don't think about every day. So, like, let's take North Dakota, for example. And, you know, there, there are people there who totally get the idea that hormone-laden, factory-raised pigs are bad to eat. No argument there. But when we get into the sort of local part, local's real easy for those of us in the Bay Area, but you know, in parts of the country, truly local means you never ever eat an orange and you only get salad three months of the year. And, and, and we don't want to fall into the trap of, of uh, appearing arrogant and condescending and not caring about the, the, the needs and desires of these people. So you know, how do we make sense out of the local part of it in a way that really is respectful of the people who live all across the country and, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and their desires for a varied diet? Yep. Great, great question. Um, well, the first thing that occurs to me is to share uh, something that maybe everybody here doesn't know. Most people don't know. So how many people here have heard of Stone Barns? Okay, one, two, okay, a few. Stone Barns. So this is a Rockefeller estate outside Tarrington, uh, near Tarrytown, New York, where David Rockefeller has basically funded a massive reconstruction of this old dairy um, barn in honor of his deceased wife um, and turned it into like a, kind of almost like a, a model of sustainable agriculture. Now, what's important about this is that a, a chef named Dan Barber, who has a restaurant called Blue Hill in New York, and he's, a very, he's one of the leading, let's say, slow food chefs on the planet, you know, at risk of insulting everybody involved, I'll call him the Alice Waters of New York. So now I'm sure I pissed off everybody in New York and Berkeley and, and Alice and Dan. But, but he's a very well-respected chef in New York. And he opened a second restaurant at Stone Barns. He has one restaurant downtown New York, and he opened up another Blue Hill restaurant at Stone Barns. Why am I telling you this? Because when you go into that restaurant, there's no menu. That restaurant, this doesn't address your question. I'm going to get to your question in a second. It addresses the beginning of it, which is a restaurant where the richest, most powerful people in the New York area go to eat. They do not get to order anything. They get whatever Dan Barber has sourced locally and fresh that night and serves them. Just, you know, it's kind of crazy. Think about it. These people could order anything from anywhere on the planet that they want, and they, go, they voluntarily go to this place where the chef just serves them whatever is fresh and local. So I think the only way to really answer your question is not to answer it on the level you asked it, because you're asking like a transition question. The, the other way to ask a related question is, this is just elitist. This is about people can afford to eat at Chez Panisse in Blue Hill. What the heck are you really talking about? How is that going to transform the American food system? And the answer is, I don't know exactly, because it's a transition period. We're going from a system that is completely imbalanced and doesn't reflect the true costs of anything, the true long-term costs of anything. Certainly of food. I'll just stick with that. And by the way, good segue back to tonight's prop. The real cost of cheap food. That's Time magazine. The real cost means the long-term cost, the cost that isn't borne by the consumer immediately, but it comes back to bite us all. So I think the real answer to your question is we are at the beginning of a transition away from the idea that we should be able to buy anything we want cheaply whenever we want it to a system that we have to have more quality and more variability and more seasonal connection and whatever, and that's going to manifest itself differently in all different parts of the country, and there's no perfect answer. In, in, at the beginning, the transition looks disrespectful, it looks confusing. If you live in one area where you can go local and still get 80% of what you want whenever you want it, you have an unfair advantage. That is absolutely true. But I think the only way to get there is to think about it long term, that we're just going to be moving as a culture in a new direction. I really believe that by connecting slow to money, we change parts of the discussion. And, and I, I would say also I, I, I intend that slow money will be the best friend slow food ever had because 
you need to bring the money part to the equation. You need to, we need to change economic relationships, and they're not just on the consumer side. It's not just I as a consumer vote when I buy this or that. That's part of it. But guess what? Most of our money is in capital markets. You know, it's like we're like little mini foundations. Think about it. Ninety-five percent of your assets every day are floating around out there somewhere, and you're making little purchase decisions with the cash you have. So we have to change that. That change, I believe, can be much more broad-based. I really do. I, I believe this is where there was there was a blog on the Huffington Post that said something like this: "Slow food is the perfect marriage of." Italian Marxism and American conservatism. It was really a funny thing. But if you think about this, this is not fundamentally red or blue. You know, what's more red than local? What's more red than getting rid of all the craziness from far away that's screwing up your community? You know, so there's a lot of crossover here. There's a lot of, a lot of potential for crossover. Oh. Whoops. Hang on, there's a yeah. microphone back there. Sorry. Let's try to do these last three, if, okay. they, if they're short. Uh, well, I think this will be short, but piggybacking on, on that question, um, I'm interested in your million-person strategy, the, the how of the million people. And I'm particularly thinking of people who don't, like you were saying, don't see themselves as, as investors. Mm -hmm. They may see themselves as consumers who invest with their dollar that way. But, you know, just thinking, I guess I, I don't even invest. And I'm 23. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering if the million people includes people in middle America, or is it? I hope so. Okay. And, and you don't have a how for... Well, we are going to use the Internet and, a, and um, a continuation of the process we started this year of, of having meetings around the country to get the slow money principles out and signed. Okay. That's, not, that's not rocket science, but it's not uncomplicated. Okay. Um, there is a Bush appointee called Barbara Robinson who is in charge of the certification of organic farms, and she wants to broaden the things that are uh, used in organic farms to include things that we would not consider, you know, desirable. Mm -hmm. And I think she needs to be removed immediately, <laughs> and I'd like to know if anybody's working on that. You can be in charge of that. No. <laughs> uh, I am sure that there are many advocacy groups, you know, um, looking at all kinds of places um, in the government that need to be... Um, pushed in a more sustainable direction. But certainly for where we're, we're, we're really focusing on the investment side of the, whatever you want to call it. When I say investing, I just want to make clear, it's a broad definition of investing. It's in the category of what it means to be an investor in the 21st century, that it can include grants, it can include loans, it can include equity investment. It's putting capital to work in a way that will benefit you know, the future. So we're focused on, the, on that part of it. And, um, but I would say, going back to the million-person strategy, if we scale anywhere near to that target, we will be involved in advocacy and other there will be other changes that will come out of this, and that's kind of exciting. That potential of building a grassroots uh, movement is exciting. So one last quick one. Um, I guess beyond, um, beyond the heartstrings, what do you think investors are looking for when they're putting their money into these local systems of agriculture? Uh, I'm not sure what answer you're looking for. I, I think it's the obvious. I well, think, is again, it the traditional ROI? I mean, Oh, absolutely not. I know, I know that. Absolutely <laughs> not. It's not. I'll give you an anecdote, another anecdote. Um, a Bay Area venture capitalist who was at our Point Reyes meeting last December stood up about halfway through a whole day of this and said, can I completely disagree with you? And I, I, I know him. I said, of course. What is it? He said, why do you keep saying we're not going to make any money? There's a ton of money to be made in this. You're talking about a sea change in the whole food system of this country. There's going to be all kinds of entrepreneurial opportunities, and some of these companies are going to become big, and we're going to make money. Why do you keep saying we're not going to make much money? And I said, well, here's why, because I don't think we are. <laughs> I said, I do completely disagree with you. The arithmetic doesn't work. You know, the way venture capitalists make money is by having a few Googles. I said that before. But leaving that out, I said, even if we were, despite ourselves, despite my best understanding, we somehow made a lot of money, I think we have to leave it in for the benefit of future generations. And there was a roar of affirmation from the audience. And I know that for some group of Americans, I don't know how big the group is yet, they are willing and desirous of investing with some portion of their assets for reasons other than just making as much money as they can. I know that is absolutely 100% true. So we are going to demonstrate the scale of that group um, over the next couple of years. So you can, you can stay tuned. I would add one more quantitative thing for the left brain people in the audience and listening. At Investor Circle, which I was chairman of for 10 years, where we invested over 133 million in 200 early stage deals, including several dozen organic food companies, when we surveyed the food investors, they actually all said in statistically relevant form, that they were not investing to maximize rate of return. They were investing for a bunch of other reasons. So it is absolutely incontrovertible that there's a group of inv investors ready to move in a new direction. We're just going to find out how big it is. Uh, we have to wrap up, but I would just say quickly, Mohammed Yunus um, has, is promoting the idea of social enterprises that make zero return. 
we are suggesting that we think that from this class of investments you can make a modest long-term positive rate of return. But we have to, we have to demonstrate that part of the arithmetic has to be demonstrated by doing over the next five or ten years. Thank you all for coming. With all of that, I want to thank you again very much for coming tonight. And this now concludes um, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 104th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you. <laughs>